Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to turn over to Luke chapter 19. We are going to be studying uh, verses 11 through 27 here in just a few minutes. Luke uh, chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. And our text for today is all about waiting. And that perhaps feels quite appropriate to me because all I feel like I've been doing lately is waiting. I feel like I have been waiting for 2020 to be over for a long time. I feel like we've been waiting for this church merger. I feel like we have been waiting for a vaccine to come, like we have been waiting to go out to dinner with our friends and our family and not worry about it anymore. And we're right in the middle of Advent, which is a time when Christians all over the world are reminded that we are waiting for our King and our Savior Jesus to return. And so even as we begin this morning, I just would offer a word of encouragement because this has been a big week. We've heard the great news that a vaccine is coming and I think there is reason to hope that this pandemic will not go on forever, that in the next few months we may even see an end to it. But friends, that is not our true hope. Let us as God's people find our sure and steady anchor in Jesus, in whom we have the hope of forgiveness of sins, in whom we have the hope of life everlasting in whom we have a hope of an eternal inheritance. Friends, that is our only true hope. Let that be the thing that we remember this season. Now, as we turn to our text today, we are going to be finishing up our series in the parables. We've been studying the parables most of the fall. And uh, today we turn to something that's called the parable of the ten minas. And this is a story about a king. It's a story about a king who leaves his kingdom for a while and later returns. It's a story about his authority. And it's a story about the instructions that he gives to his servants while he's gone. And much like all of the parables, Jesus uses this story to teach us about the kingdom of God. And through it, we learn that Jesus, our king, is going to have to go away for a while before he returns to usher in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And this parable isn't so much concerned with the timing of when Jesus returns, but rather how we, who are servants of the king, how we who are true citizens of the kingdom of God are meant to wait for him to return. And the kind of waiting we're talking about isn't the kind of waiting you do on the porch, drinking tea, waiting for the corn to grow. It's not the kind of waiting you do when the power's out because you're bored, and it's not the kind of waiting you do in line at the DMV. The kind of waiting that we're called to is an urgent and an active engagement in the business of the kingdom while we wait for the king to return. Now, friends, this parable actually serves as a warning to us because it also tells us that when Jesus returns, judgment is going to come. And when that judgment comes, for those who have been faithful, there will be joy and celebration and great reward in heaven. But for those who reject the authority of the king, for those who disobey the instructions that he gives us while he's gone, well, friends, there will be punishment and separation and even death. And so in many ways, this is not your typical Advent sermon on waiting. But it's a message that we all need to hear. And it's a message where I think we will find a deep and meaningful encouragement because our lives are not just empty days where we wait to run out the clock. But our lives have a purpose 
and a joy in the service of the king. That's what we're going to study today. How do we wait for the king to return? So if you found Luke chapter 19, I'd ask you to stand in honor of God's word as I read for us. This is God's word. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem... And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Friends, the first point of our uh, parable this morning is that we are waiting for a king and a kingdom. That might seem like a somewhat superficial point that's right on the surface of the text, But it's a really important one that I don't think we can miss because it sets up the whole rest of the parable. You can see at the beginning of the parable in verse 11 that Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable. It says that he told the parable because Jesus was near to Jerusalem and because the disciples supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. In other words, Jesus is telling this parable to clear up a misunderstanding that the disciples had about the kingdom of God. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had been telling them to repent and believe because the kingdom of God was at hand. And now here he is on the doorstep of Jerusalem, on the doorstep of the capital of Israel, and they thought this was it. The kingdom of God is coming. And friends, the kingdom of God was coming. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to die. He was coming to pay the penalty for sin. He was coming to be raised from the dead. He was coming afterwards to be ascended into heaven, to sit on the throne and to inaugurate the kingdom of God. But he wasn't coming to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. He was going to go away for a while. And we were going to have to wait for him 
to return. The disciples thought the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. And so Jesus says to them in verse 12, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. In this parable, the nobleman or the king represents Jesus. It's right on the nose. And what this means is that Jesus is going to have to go away for a while before he returns to bring in the kingdom of God in its fullness. And so the first point of this parable is that we are both waiting for a king and a kingdom. We don't actually learn a lot more about that here. The, this passage isn't really concerned with the coming of the kingdom. It's more concerned with how Jesus interacts with his servants and the citizens, how we're meant to wait but before we get to that, I would just offer a brief word of encouragement about this truth because the fact that we are waiting for a kingdom has been for me one of the most important truths in my faith. Because it's true that Jesus has come to inaugurate a kingdom. And friends, we are indeed forgiven when we are in Christ. We are adopted. We are redeemed. We have as our inheritance now rest and peace and joy and we are even now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. All of those things are true of us now when we have faith in Jesus. But what's also true is that we only experience them as a part of the joy of the fullness in which we will experience them when Jesus returns. And we look forward to a day when there will be no more sadness and no more sorrows and no more tears and there will be joy because we are in the presence of the King and we will be worshiping him for all of eternity. And friends, that is an encouragement to me because I am tired of the brokenness of this world. I'm just tired of the sickness that I see and the death. And I'm tired of the suffering and the pain. I'm tired of the sickness. I'm tired of the brokenness of the political division. I'm tired of the racism that happens in this world. And friends, thanks be to God that that is not the end of the story. We are waiting for a king and we are waiting for a kingdom. And when that comes, there will be no more sadness. There will be no more tears. Thanks be to God. We wait for a king and a kingdom when we are in Christ Jesus. That's the first point this morning. But like I said, this parable really isn't about that. It's just a wonderful reminder of the truth. And so we need to focus in on what this parable teaches us about how it is that we're meant to wait. And so the second point then quickly to move on is that only those who submit to the king belong to the kingdom. Only those who submit to the king belong to the kingdom. Or maybe put another way, those who rebel against the king will not receive eternal life. The way that we see this come out in the parable is the way that the king interacts with these so-called citizens. We actually only see a little bit about these citizens, as they're called, at the beginning of the parable and at the end. Take a look at verse 14. After the king goes away, it says that his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. And then we don't hear about them again until verse 27. After the king has returned, he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Friends, this is an incredibly hard thing to read in the Bible when we see our king and our savior saying to bring enemies and have them slaughtered. I just want to acknowledge that right off the bat. It is a hard thing to read that. 
And so how do we even begin to understand that? How do we even begin to unpack it? Well, the first thing is I don't think these servants were true citizens of the kingdom. It calls them citizens, but in fact, we see that they are actually rebels. They don't represent true children of God. It says of them that they hated their king, that they didn't want him to reign over them. In other words, they reject the authority of the king. Their sin is treason against the king, and friends, the penalty for treason has always been death, and it is that way here. The other thing when, to say about when we read things like this is it reminds us that the Bible is not a domesticated coffee table magazine. The Bible is a field combat manual. The stakes are high. The stakes are life and death, and we are at war for our souls. And this message here serves as an urgent warning for us. Those who reject the authority of Jesus will not inherit eternal life. Those who reject the authority of the king will be separated from him forever. And I think that begs an incredibly important question for us is do we want to submit to the authority of the king? Do we see our lives now in this life as subject to the authority of the king? It's so easy in our culture to connect with the idea that God is love. And that is true. He is love. But the Bible teaches us that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. That Jesus, our King, has an authority over how we live our lives now while we wait for him to return. And so the question for you is, do you want to submit to the authority of the King? Because that is an incredibly countercultural way of thinking. There are so many things in our culture that tell us we don't have to submit to anyone's authority, let alone God's. I've been thinking about that this week, all of the many ways that our culture undermines this idea that we should submit to the authority of a king. And I thought I would just give you one example that came to mind. I wonder if you're familiar with the hashtag YOLO. I did, in fact, just say YOLO, yes. Uh, it means you only live once. You only live once. And it's sort of a modern-day carpe diem. If you're not familiar with it, it says, I don't want to waste my life. I want to live my life to the fullest because, hey, you only live once. Now, I actually think that's a fairly generous way to understand that. Because underneath that catchphrase or that mantra is the idea that I don't have to submit to anyone or anything except my own self-indulgent desires. In fact, I think YOLO is more of a blank check for reckless living than it is for anything else. The idea that, hey, there are no consequences to what I do. I'm going to live my life to the fullest. You can't tell me what I do. Get off my back. You only live once. And the reason that I think this is such a helpful contrast to the teaching of the Bible is in a remarkable collision of worldviews, the Bible actually agrees with the statement, you only live once. Just not in the way that the hashtag claims it. The Bible agrees that what we do in this life has consequences for the life to come. And this passage is teaching us that Jesus is going to return in judgment. And if you do not submit to the authority of the king, if in fact you rebel against him, then there will be an eternal punishment for you. Friends, you only live once. 
And so for us then, the question today is how do we mean to respond to this urgent warning of this parable, to take the decisions we make in this life seriously? I'd like to first speak to those of us in this room who consider ourselves Christians. If you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then the question for you is, am I submitting to the authority of the king in all areas of my life? Or are there parts of my life that I'm holding back for myself? Are there parts of the Bible that I read that I don't want to submit to, that I don't like, that I don't feel like are true? Friends, if that's you, then you need to hear the warning of this parable. As Christians, we need to eagerly and joyfully submit to the authority of our loving and true king. And we need to urgently seek out areas in our lives where we're not conforming to that authority. But if, friends, today you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, then I think this warning is all the more urgent for you. And I would ask you, how do you respond to the teaching of this parable? As I see it, you have only two choices. The first is that you could respond to the warning as the so-called citizens did. You could reject the authority of the king. And the penalty for that is very clear here. Or you could remember that this parable is told on the doorstep of Jerusalem. And in fact, the very next thing that happens in the Gospel of Luke is Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem and he does so to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion. In fact, apart from Jesus, all of us are rebels to the king. One of the ways the Bible talks about our sin is as rebellion against God. And all of us need the salvation that comes through Jesus when he goes to the cross to die to pay the penalty for our sin. Because when he does that, he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness in, once we, in which we once lived into the kingdom of God. He pays the penalty for our rebellion. He dies in our place so that we might have eternal life. And you can today Repent of your rebellion and turn to the gracious and merciful master of Jesus. And in him you will find hope and rest and peace. Colossians 1 says this. God will deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, and you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Friends, the second point of this parable is that when the king returns, judgment will come. The second point of this parable is a warning against rebellion against the king. A reminder that the only way to become a true citizen of the kingdom of God is to repent and believe in Jesus and he will transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. Thanks be to God. And so then, 
with the time we have left, we want to focus on the so what of this. What does this mean for us? Because the bulk of this parable actually focuses on how we are to faithfully wait for Christ to return. You see, as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we have responsibilities to that kingdom. And the question for us is, how are we to live out our responsibilities to a heavenly kingdom while we are on earth? How are we to live out our responsibilities to a future kingdom in the present? How do we submit to the authority of the king while we wait for him to return? And so the third point of our text today is the way that we are meant to wait for the king to return is by using the gifts that he has given us to engage in the business of the kingdom. The way that we wait for Christ to return is by using the gifts that God has given us to engage in the business of the kingdom. And so we turn back to the parable. And I'll remind you as we look back at this next interaction between the king and his servants, that this parable is actually called the parable of the ten minas. A mina is a kind of money. It's about four months' worth of salary for an average employee at the time, as it turns out. But this parable isn't about the money. As we've been saying all the way through studying the parables, the way to understand the main points are to focus on the characters. And I think it actually does a disservice that the title is the parable of the ten minas because it's actually about the obedient and the disobedient servants. That might be how I would title this parable. And we can see that the nobleman, the king, goes into his far country. And before he goes, he calls his servants to him. And he gives them each a mina. And he says, engage in business until I return. And when he returns, he calls them to himself. And he says, please show me your ledger. Show me what you've done with this money that I've given you. Show me how much money you've made. And the first servant returns and he says, Lord, your one mina has made 10 more. And the king celebrates. He says, well done, good servant. And he gives him authority over 10 cities. Likewise, the second servant returns, and he's made five minas from the one. And the king rewards him with authority over five cities. And so the point of this first part of the interaction is relatively clear. When the king returns and judgment comes, those who have been faithful to what he has called them to do will receive a great reward in heaven. He will celebrate them and say to us, well done, good servant. And then he will give us a reward that is far more than we earned for ourselves. But of course, there is another servant there is another servant who is not treated the same way. This third servant comes and he says, Lord, here is the mina that you gave me. I put it away in a handkerchief. And instead of celebration, the Lord says to him, you wicked servant, I will condemn you. Now, this is a fairly surprising response to me. I was surprised by that. Because I thought, well, he didn't waste it. He didn't throw a big party. He didn't buy himself a new car. He took the mina you gave him and he brought it right back to you. What is wrong with that? And friends, that is actually the question that I think we need to understand. What did the third servant do wrong? Well, the answer is he disobeyed the king. 
Look back to before the king leaves in verse 13. He says to his servants, engage in the business of the kingdom until I come. And the servant didn't do that. He did not engage in the business of the kingdom. He put his money away. He didn't even put it in the bank for interest. And what comes for him is punishment. And so I think here again we have a warning. Here again we have a warning that when the king returns, those who have not been faithful to his command will suffer punishment. In fact, it says later in verse 26 that to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. For those who are faithful to the commands of the king, Jesus will reward us with wonderful blessings and joy, but those who have disobeyed him, to those who have disobeyed him, there will come punishment. And so then, friends, before we move on to ask, what does it mean for us to engage in the kingdom? I want to just take a quick side note and address a question that I'm sure many of you have. Because did you notice that when the third servant came to bring the mina, he actually accused the king of being harsh and unfair. He justified his disobedience by saying, I didn't do this because I knew that you were a harsh man. You reap what you do not sow. You, you take back what you did not deposit. And it is very important for us to see that the king in this parable is not harsh or unfair. The king is not guilty of that which the servant accuses him of. I think it's hard to see that because when we read the king's response, he says, I'm going to condemn you with your own words. And he repeats back what the servant said. But he's not acknowledging or admitting to the accusation. Rather, he's calling out the servant for making excuses. You should read that verse by saying, instead of saying, you knew me to be a harsh man, meaning I am a harsh man after all, that's not what it means. Instead, you should read that by saying, you thought that I was a harsh man? Well, if you had thought that I was going to take from you what I did not give you, and if you thought that I was going to expect of you more than I gave you, then you would have at least put your money in the bank. That excuse is ridiculous. You disobeyed me. The second piece of evidence in this parable that we have, that the, the king is not that which he is accused of, is how he responds to the other servants. If he had been a king who took what he did not deposit, who reaped what he did not sow, then when the other servants had brought him the ten minas, he would have just taken those ten minas, he would have said, thank you very much, he would have kicked them to the curb. But that's not what he did. Instead, he rewarded them with something that was a hundred times more valuable than the ten minas that he, they brought him. The king is not harsh or demanding. He does not reap what he does not sow. That is so important for us to see. And I think there's a nugget of truth here for us that we have to be careful when we think about submitting to the obedience of the king, submitting to what God has called us to. We cannot sit in judgment of the king as a way of excusing ourselves from what he has called us to. We cannot say that is not loving. We cannot say that is not kind. We cannot say I know better than the king. We cannot say I'm more loving than he is or I'm more forgiving than he is. For when we sit in judgment over the king, that in fact is rebellion against the king. When we sit in judgment over our Lord Jesus, that is in fact disobedience to him. And with that will come judgment. And we need to be careful of it because all of us do that. So be careful, my friends, not to fall into the same trap 
as this third servant. So then for us, the question remains, what does it mean for us to engage in the business of the kingdom? If the king says to his servants, engage in business until I come back, well, then that means that he is also calling us to engage in the business of the kingdom. And the question I'd like to spend the last few minutes talking about is, well, what does that mean for us? And there's a way to read this parable that focuses, again, only on the money, that says, am I using my financial resources to benefit the kingdom of God? And that is a totally fine way to read this parable. I think we should, in fact, definitely use the financial resources that God has given us to benefit the kingdom of God. We should be giving money to the local church. We should be giving money to help the poor. We should be giving money to advance the gospel around the world. And if you're not, if you're not, then I think you need to look carefully at the warning of this parable. For when the king returns, he's going to ask you, what have you done with this money that he has given you? And you don't want to be like the third servant who brings him nothing in return. But friends, focusing on the money is too narrow. I think it misses a broader point for us about what it means to engage in the business of the kingdom while we wait for Jesus to return. And I've been sort of thinking about what that might mean. I'd love to draw your attention to just three specific passages of Scripture that I think capture the idea of what does it mean for us to engage in the business of the kingdom. The first is in Acts chapter 1. You might remember we preached through it a little earlier this year. It's after the Lord Jesus has died, after he's been resurrected. He's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And his disciples ask him a remarkably similar question to the one we're dealing with today. He said, they say to him, Lord, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says to them, no. No, now is not the time. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does it mean to engage in the business of the kingdom? It means to bear witness to the name of Jesus. It means to share the gospel to the nations. And friends, just think about the disciples in Acts, what they did. They looked to the sky for a few moments, wondering if he was going to come right back. But once they realized he wasn't, they got busy spreading the name of God across all the nations. There was an urgency because they believed he was coming back. We need to have an urgent witness bearing about us when we engage in the business of the kingdom. The second thing I would draw your attention to is Matthew 28. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What does it mean to engage in the business? It means make disciples. It means teach people how to follow Jesus. Teach people how to submit to the authority of the king. And then finally, I would say, let's look at Luke chapter 10. Engaging in the business means loving your neighbor as yourself. Just think about the parable of the good Samaritan that we followed or studied a few weeks back. What does it mean to engage in the business of the kingdom? It means to bear witness to the king. It means to make disciples of those who will submit to his authority, and it means loving your neighbor as yourself. Friends, the king is going to come back, and he's going to ask you to open up your ledger, and he's going to say, what have you done with the gifts that I have given you? And you don't want to have an empty ledger when the king comes back. And so I would ask you, before you too quickly 
take off the warning of this parable, when was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? When was the last time you bore witness about the truth of who Jesus was? When was the last time you sat down and really thought about what it was to follow Jesus with someone? When you read the Bible and thought, how can we be more like Christ's disciples? When was the last time it really cost you something to love somebody? That's what it means to engage in the business of the kingdom. God has given us so many gifts. We live in one of the wealthiest countries of all of history. And he didn't give us those gifts for our own self-indulgence. He gave them that we might do the business of his kingdom while we wait for him to return. Now, friends, I have just one more point. And if you'll give me three more minutes, hopefully we can make it. And that has to do with the kingdom of God. I wonder when you think about the kingdom of God, do you think first about the overarching authority of God over all of creation as the rightful ruler? Do you think about the eternal kingdom of God, about his power and his dominion? Well, if you do, you would be right. That is where we should start to think about the kingdom of God. But that view of the eternal kingdom of God is insufficient. It's incomplete. Because the kingdom of God on earth is not some ethereal mist that floats over all of creation. No, the kingdom of God shows up on earth in the local church. The kingdom of God shows up on earth in the local church. We are both an outpost or an embassy of the kingdom, and we are the church's temporary geography. And the reason this matters is that if we're to engage in the business of the kingdom, we need to engage in the business of the local church. The way that you bear witness to people and make disciples and love people needs to happen in the context of the visible kingdom on earth. It needs to happen right here in the gathering of the local church. I think sometimes people look at this command to serve the king and they think, well, I don't have a platform for that ministry. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. I'm not a small group leader. I'm not an elder. I'm not a pastor. And I have so much to offer. If only the church would recognize me, I could really get engaged in the business of the kingdom. But friends, that's not how it works. The platform for kingdom business is the people in this room. The platform for your ministry is personal interactions. And we at Trinity do not have an over-programmed way of doing our ministry precisely because we believe that God has put relationships in your life so that you can engage in the business of the kingdom until he comes. We believe that he has put people in your life who need to hear the gospel. We believe that he's put people in your life who, need to make, who you need to make disciples out of. We believe that he's put people in your life who you need to love. And so I would say, as we think about what does it mean for us to really engage in the kingdom, look around this room, go back and look at the church directory, think about somebody you haven't seen for a while, give them a call, check in with them, read the Bible with them. Friends, the platform for engaging in the business of the kingdom is the personal ministry within the local church. And all of us can do that. Because the reality is none of us have it all together. None of us are perfectly equipped to do this ministry and so don't let your feeling of inadequacy stop you. We firmly believe that broken people, helping broken people, is the way that God calls us to wait until he returns. And so then, friends, I want to end where we started. 
I want to end with remembering that we are all feeling like we are waiting around for things. And that feeling of waiting can immobilize us because of the uncertainty that we feel. And because of this feeling that until this thing happens, I couldn't possibly engage in the business of the kingdom. But friends, the uncertainty of this life is never going to stop. The waiting is never going to stop. And the irony is that waiting for the kingdom of God means we don't stop engaging in the business of the kingdom until he returns. Lord, help us to be faithful, we pray. Will you pray with me? Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And, O oh Lord, establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.